Welcome to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. You know what? I don't know anyone who knows more about the Bundy family than Brian Hyde. Brian Hyde does a podcast called The Brian Hyde Show, and he also does a substack at nowheretohide.substack.com. That's nowhere to hide, H-Y-D-E, his last name, nowhere to hide at substack.com. Brian is a very good friend of the Bundy family, particularly with Ammon, Ryan, and David. He's also extremely good friends with Cliven and Carol, the patriarch and the matriarch of the family. Brian Hyde covered the Bundy trial extensively in Nevada from November 7, 2017 to January 8, 2018, the day that Gloria Navarro declared a mistrial with prejudice. He also was there at the Bureau of Land Management standoff back on April 12, 2014. Brian has also done videos lately defending Ammon Bundy and getting the real story out there about the Baby Cyrus case. Remember on episode one, Teresa Manzilla and I got into CPS and I briefly mentioned Baby Cyrus. I also mentioned Baby Cyrus's name on episode two. Remember I told you, if you don't know who Baby Cyrus is, go look it up because I didn't have time to talk about it. Well, I made time on this episode to talk about who is Baby Cyrus, what the case is all about. We also talked about the future for Ammon Bundy and how Brian Hyde does not know what the future for him holds. We also had a very philosophical discussion at the very end of this podcast talking about is the freedom movement of this country doomed? He did not know the answer, but he mentioned we need to be humble as a nation. In the beginning of the podcast, Brian and I discussed how he got into radio and how he got introduced to the Bundys. I think that this will be a very enjoyable podcast. By the way, if you want to follow the podcast on Truth Social, Twitter, and Getter, do so at R-C-K-Y Freedom. That's R-C-K-Y and the word freedom. If you want to follow the podcast on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. Also, if you have a guest that you think I should interview or just a comment or a suggestion, don't be afraid to email me either. That email address is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at proton, P R O T O N M A I L, Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. Stick around to enjoy this episode of the podcast and buckle up for the ride. Hi, Brian. How are you? Fantastic. Thanks. Good. It's been a while since we've chatted, hasn't it? It's been a while since you've been on my podcast. Well, time flies quickly, and yeah, it's it's been a while, but man, it's great to catch up with you again. Congratulations, by the way, on the new podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited about it. I'm I'm really uh, taking it seriously this time, and uh, it's kind of like being fired from radio stations. It's like the Canning Plus 7 podcast has fired me, but I found a new podcast. It's kind of weird how that works. Yeah, well, you know, I think you've shown great flexibility when sometimes when the path takes a different turn or a, an uphill or downhill slant, you just kind of go with it and see where it leads you. 
Oh, absolutely. So, Brian, tell us a little bit about you, a little bit about your childhood, how you got into radio, and um, we'll go, and then how you got introduced to the Bundys, and we'll go from there. We're going to talk about B.B. Cyrus here in a few minutes, but I want the audience to get to know who is Brian Hyde. Okay. Um, I was uh, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, lived there till I was about uh, 12 years old, then moved to southern Idaho, and, uh, you know, all other than being adopted, uh, you know, just a pretty normal childhood. I got into radio right out of high school. So it was at the very end of 1984. And uh, unfortunately, I, I did not realize my dream of working for a cool radio station, one that played music that I would be interested in. I ended up uh, working on a station which uh, played basically my parents' music, you know, adult standards, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, that kind of stuff. Oh. And uh, the, the good news is I learned to appreciate there really is marvelous music from that era. And so those those old boring you know adult songs turns out that's that's great music and the older I get the more I appreciate it, but uh, I I eventually worked my way into a top forty station and then from there um, having sworn that I would never do talk radio was asked to fill in for a host who had left and uh, when I started doing talk radio something clicked and I went wow this is this is actually where I feel most comfortable and so that that was back in 1994. Okay, and so when you did talk radio, was it in the morning? Was it political, or what? What kind of talk did you do when you first started out? Well, when I first started, I was very leery of being labeled anything. Somebody came up to me once and said, "Hey, I heard you going off on this topic, and you, boy, you're quite the little conservative." And I was like, "No, oh. you know, they're sticking a label on me." So I tried to be very safe, meaning I tried to only talk about things that nobody could possibly disagree with, which as you can imagine, made for really boring, you know, uninspiring radio. But uh, one day I finally just threw caution to the wind. There was a subject I felt very strongly about. I believe it was the 1994 uh, so-called assault weapons ban. And I went off on a little bit of a tear and this magical thing happened. The phones began to ring and I started having conversations with listeners. And from there it was, uh, you know, I was, I was off and running. Okay, and then I know something happened to you in, what, 96, where you moved down to Utah, St. George, and then you started yeah, becoming very popular, and then you started talking against the Patriot Act, and that's when all hell broke loose, correct? Yeah, I I was, uh, I was knew, after a couple of years of filling in for, for this talk show host in southern Idaho, I knew that uh, talk radio was where I was going to I, I knew that was where I was going to find my my place. And so uh, when the opportunity came to move to Southern Utah, I was uh, I applied for and received the job of programming KDXU, which was a big 10,000 watt uh, flamethrower in St. George. And I went down there and uh, built a very large loyal audience. You know, I mean, this is during the heyday of Rush Limbaugh. And, uh, and, and, and I'm proud to tell you this. I'm going to flex a little bit, Kevin. Uh, at, at one point, my ratings, my cumulative audience ratings were actually higher than Rush's in the St. George market. I had more listeners tuned into my show than Rush did to his show in, in our market. But, uh, yeah, the, it was 9-11 and then the Patriot Act that followed and then the invasion of Iraq. That's where I was put to the test of, you know, do I stick to my principles or do I get on the bandwagon? Because, you know, prior to that, when Clinton was president, it was easy to be a conservative. Everybody was conservative. We're opposing Clinton. When Bush became president, when George W. Bush was elected, you know, we thought, well, he's a constitutional conservative. He's going to keep us conservative. And we saw very quickly following 9-11, 
he was anything but a principled conservative. So that's where I had to make a choice. I had to part company with a lot of uh, conservatives, and I caught a pretty fair amount of flack for doing so. Let me ask you this. So when in 96 were you, did you go to St. George, first of all? Do you remember? Yeah, it would have been uh, August of 96. Okay. So let me ask you a question. We're going to get to the main topic here, folks, but I think that this is very important. How did you feel back in 2006 when Glenn Beck, as far as I know, was the only mainstream conservative talker going against the grain in terms of knocking on President Bush and things like that? Um. What, back in the, in the early 2000s? No, back in 2006, at least when oh, I started. Oh, 2006? Yeah. Um, well, I was glad that there were other voices doing it, but it was very risky. I know a lot of talk radio personalities were shown the door and, and kicked out because they, they would not get on board. And the Iraq war was really, that was kind of the, the big um, sifting point for a lot of people. You know, I, I had people gunning for me and trying to get me fired from my job. And what the heck is wrong with you? You know, why won't you get on board and, and you know, support this war? And, and it was because I, I was facing a matter of conscience. My conscience said Iraq has in no way materially harmed the U.S., but we're being told that, uh, that it's essential that we go in there and, uh, you know, you know, punish alleged uh, involvement in 9-11, and then it was weapons of mass destruction, and then it shifted to to liberate them from Saddam Hussein. You know, the goalposts kept moving, the rationale kept changing, and it was just one of those tough times where you just have to decide, do I do what's popular, or do I do what my conscience says is right? Did you? And oh, go ahead. It just, it was a hard time, but I'm very grateful for having gone through it. Um, I, I'm glad there were voices like Glenn Beck and others. I really didn't know Glenn Beck much at, at that time. I wasn't as aware of him until later. But, um, yeah, it was it was tough. You know, the Hannity's of the world, you know, did very well. But, you know, I think that in many cases people had to sell their soul in a buyer's market in order to to remain popular and to, to remain on board the bandwagon. So I want to ask you, though. Do you think that you became popular amongst liberals at that time? And maybe this is a dumb question, but did any liberal talk show network ever contact you to put you on just because you were against the war? Oh, no. No. Nope. Okay. No. Um, I, I did make some very good friends in libertarian circles, which is where I found the most principled people who were consistent in their mm -hmm. principles. But uh, no, at that time, I really didn't have... Uh, I didn't have anybody knocking down my door. I just I stuck to my guns and and realized that uh, this is a message not everybody's going to want to hear. And uh, the the interesting thing was years later, after you know we went in and invaded Iraq, you know went in there for the second time, um, it, it turned out that it didn't go quite like the cakewalk we were told it was going to be. And it was years after the fact I would have people come up to me, you know, individually and and you know few and far between, but people would come up and say. I remember you were you were against us doing that, and I I just wanted you to know you you were right, and you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not gloating so much as I was just like oh man could you say that a little bit louder because <laughs> you know it it took time to get to to get my audience to forgive me but in the end I think that the best part that came out of it was they came to know that even if we disagreed on certain issues I would speak the truth as best I understood it and it wasn't you know I didn't think they were stupid or evil if they didn't agree with me. But uh, there, there was no implied consent that by listening to this show, you have to agree with whatever I say. Just that I'm going to tell you as straight and credibly as I can. And, you know, for some people, 
They, they would still come back, even though they disagreed. And I took that as the highest compliment of all. So let's fast forward now to, uh, what was it, 2014. We're going to go pre-2014, but just to put things into perspective for the audience here, it would have been, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to look at the calendar, the first Monday of April, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I think. I'd have to look at my calendar. In 2014, I was listening to you and Kate Daly, who also, congratulations to Kate Daly for uh, walking in her own footsteps in talk radio also. You can catch her at the Kate, uh, what is it, katedalyradio.com. Anyway, uh, you and Kate Daly were talking on a radio show in St. George about Clive Bundy. I had no idea who this guy was. And all I heard you say is, you may not like Clive Bundy. You may think that he should have paid his grazing fees, but also you need, she said something to the understand, to the effect of if, you didn't stand behind them. They could come after you. And that's when I called in and said, where's Bo Greitz? We need him. I had to research this guy. I had no idea who you were talking about. And how did you get acquainted with the Bundys, first of all? And what inspired you to cover them? We'll talk a little bit uh, briefly about covering the Bundy trial. Then we'll get to baby Cyrus. Well, um, I was friends with Ryan Bundy. I moved to Cedar City, Utah in 2005. And uh, immediately after I moved there, um, I was attending a public meeting. It may have been a, a meeting sponsored by the John Birch Society or somebody. Anyway, some conservative group was was having a public meeting, and I met this young man there um, who was running for office. I believe he he may have been running for the state legislature or something like that, but it was a young guy in a cowboy hat. His name was Ryan Bundy. And so I became acquainted with him. I ran into him uh, several times over the next couple of years, and he and I were were part of a group of friends who came together uh, after attending a Stephen Pratt Know Your Liberty Lecture. Stephen Pratt was this incredible mentor. He was one of the people who was instrumental in helping write the the um, first chapter of the 5,000-year leap, the one on natural law. He was a contemporary and a student of uh, Cleon Skousen and just a great man in, in every regard. And he would go and free of charge would go out and, and teach people the principles and the practices of liberty, the the foundational ideas and ideals and the, the thinkers through history that shaped them. And the thing that always impressed me was he never encouraged people to just, you know, here, I'm saying this, so you have to believe it. He would tell them what he, he would ask them to apply what he called the heuristic learning method, which is study this out for yourself and see if what I'm saying isn't true. But he, he was em emphatic. Do not take my word for it. And he had tables of books that he would sell at cost. If you couldn't afford a book, but you were interested in reading some of these original sources, he would say, take it. Just promise me that you'll use it. And, you know, people could make donations to help cover the cost of the books. It always impressed me, though, he never put a price on the message of liberty. And so Ryan and I and a, and a few other friends came together. We kind of informally called ourselves Sons of Liberty. But uh, we would meet together every about the every Friends other of week. Liberty or Sons of Liberty? Sons of Liberty. Okay. Sons of Liberty. Ahead. And we would meet together about every other week and uh, just take the opportunity to teach each other. Basically, what we did was we built a support group for liberty. And it's funny because I was just I was just looking at this the other day. I was looking at a, an article that I had written about this uh, for St. George News. And I mean, it seems really clandestine. You know, we we started out in this little uh, nondescript office in the warehouse district there at uh, in Cedar City, you know, in the early morning hours, like spies, you know, <laughs> meeting. And 
yet uh, we had you know a doctor we had a police officer we had a farmer a couple of contractors a truck driver a teacher a mechanic a psychologist an attorney me you know and, and just we all shared this love of liberty we shared this desire to become more effective leaders within our respective communities and we were from all over southern utah so we would we would at stevens you know at stevens tutelage we we would get together we would begin with prayer and we would close our meetings with prayer and then we had two hours in which to divide the time between us by however many members were in attendance and everybody came prepared with a very short presentation to inform and inspire the the others who showed up and this could include current events it could include um, key principles of liberty that we'd been studying, self-sufficiency, or things that were happening within our communities. And often we would find ourselves talking about scriptural or even spiritual considerations because all of us were on the same page as far as we believed God was a key foundation to our liberties. And so we were looking for and discussing opportunities to better participate in our local government and ways to serve each other as well as our communities. And it was amazing after just a couple of years of doing this, you could feel a sense of purpose just beginning to distill on us. And one of our guys went on to become a county commissioner. Another became a city council member. Um, most of the members of that group at one point or another ran for public office or, or just became very active participants in local governance. And I think the most remarkable part was when we reached the point where our elected leaders, including those that disagreed with us, would approach us individually asking for input on various local issues. Now, whether they followed that or not, that's irrelevant. The fact is they came to us and said, I'd like to get your take on this issue. And it was astonishing and it was very humbling how our personal influence was magnified through coming together and creating that, that support group uh, for liberty. I mean, it, basically, we were all asking God, help us use our influence wherever we're standing as wisely as possible. So it's something I would recommend other people, you know, maybe consider if, if they are tired of just complaining from the sidelines and they want to get involved Maybe, uh, you know, instead of being the person who's known for just pointing out the faults of other people, consider becoming a leader who can make a real difference at a number of levels and, and just find the people who share your values and desire to become an influence for good in your community and then combine your efforts with them and teach and inform and inspire each other and, and watch amazing things happen. And, and I'll, I don't mind if, if I wax a little spiritual on this. With God's help, if you ask for it, you will get it. And, and you'll be surprised at the doors that will open. Well, that's, yeah, that's really neat. So I assume that Ryan, was he running for uh, legislature in Nevada or Utah? That was in Utah at that time. He lived in Cedar City. Oh, and, okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so we, I guess, I'm sorry, I took kind of the long way to get there, but oh, that's okay. Ryan was telling us all about, you know, well, you know, the, the feds have come to try to take our cattle before. And, and so we were, we were familiar with what was going on with his family and with, with the, the BLM and the grazing fees and so forth, convert, converting his father's grazing and water rights into privileges for which he would have to pay them a fee rather than actual enforceable rights that he owned and had been owned by members of their family, you know, for generations. And so when, when it started shaping up in early 2014, um, Ryan was telling us about it the whole time, and uh, we, were, we, we had a front row seat. We had access, direct access to him and his family to know what was going on, and, and that's what found us down there on April 12th of 2014, you know, the day that, uh, that Bunkerville and the standoff at Bunkerville took place. 
What was it like in Bunkerville at the standoff? And forgive me, audience, we're going to get to baby Cyrus, but I think it's very important to know the background. What was it like in Bunkerville that day on April 12th? Because I was buying a cell phone in Ogden, Utah, and where I lived at the time in uh, the Salt Lake area. I was buying one in Ogden, and I actually asked the guy behind the counter, counter, what's going on with the Bundy standoff? And he said he didn't know. He'd heard some things and... I didn't find out till the next day. I found out from you. But what was it like going down there that day? I actually had gone down the uh, previous Thursday. So two days before that standoff, I was down there with a friend who we just wanted to go down and see for ourselves. Ryan had told us, he says, you guys won't believe what's happening here. He said, it's like a military operation. These guys, they they uh, have set up a military compound, and sure enough, you could see it from the interstate. You, it looked like a military compound, you know, with, uh, you know, radio towers and searchlights. And, you know, basically they created a compound out there in the desert. And then you had at least 200 agents. And when I say agents, I'm not talking about, you know, guys in a smoky bear hat and, you know, hi, how can I help you? Welcome to your public lands. I'm talking guys who were being combat trained by the FBI hostage rescue team, by LAPD SWAT and we're, we're geared up for combat with, uh, with you know, SUV vehicles that they took out and they parked on every hilltop with guys with rifles and, and spotters to control that area. They shut down this incredible area. I mean, my friend and I went down there and um, you see signs everywhere saying, you know, you are not allowed to leave the main road. All of these roads, every dirt track was marked as closed. And if people so much as set foot off the main road, you would have one of those vehicles come running up and you would be accosted by these agents at gunpoint and either threatened or arrested, as happened to Dave Bundy and, and others. A couple of kids were going down to check their beehives and strayed off the main road and found themselves, you know, being arrested at gunpoint by these guys. It it felt, I don't know how to describe it. I've never been to North Korea, but it felt like we were in enemy-occupied territory and there was a tension there that uh, there was just, noticeable you just felt like whoa something really important is happening here but i can't tell is this bad or is this good and that was the same feeling we had when we went back a couple of days later um the the day of the standoff to the the sons of liberty and i went down there just to show moral and some spiritual support for ammon and, and ryan and their family yeah, based on what you're telling me about the scene it sounds like uh, some videos that i've seen about ruby ridge um up in northern Idaho, but were you worried that you would encounter law enforcement? Were you worried about getting shot or any of that? Because I've heard some horror stories about, like you said, people getting arrested, and I don't know if anyone got shot there and killed, but certainly arrests, and were you worried that any of that was going to happen to you or it, your friend? It was a very overt show of force, and it was meant to intimidate people. It was meant to communicate look who is in charge we have the guns we have the high ground we have the authority and of course they had set up a a free speech area which was like a little pig pen that they'd set up like a mile away out in the middle of nowhere in a, in a parking lot here's where you have free speech to protest and so when we went there we were looking around going this is this is just surreal and you know i when i went back there on that saturday my wife was was pretty she was she was pretty um not happy <laughs> that I was going. She was like, well, well, you need to be careful. And I think it's worth noting that when my friends and I went, uh, all of us are guys who have, have carried concealed firearms for years. I think at the time I had probably spent the better part of, I don't know, 20, 25 years 
you know, with, with a concealed carry permit. And we all left our guns at home when we went Why down there that? that day. Um, I can speak for myself. I assume that my, my fellow Sons of Liberty had kind of a similar uh, conversation with themselves. But um, when, when I was going back there, I realized, okay, this is, this is a volatile situation. And, and there was the hundreds and hundreds of people showing up, including different militias and, and just private citizens. And I thought, okay, th there is an element of danger here. And, and I was concerned this, this could get, this could get ugly. So um, I just kind of took it to the Lord and said, look, I'm concerned that uh, there really is danger, not just of being arrested, but maybe of, of being killed or, or injured. So I made the choice that um, I'm going to go without taking arms. I will trust that if I need protection, you know, you, God will be my protection. And it was interesting because all of us who showed up that day kind of had a similar, what, you didn't bring your gun either? You didn't either? No, no, I didn't. And there was no conversation beforehand, you know, as to, to why not to. We just, we all kind of came to that conclusion that putting our trust in God instead of in our own strength was the wisest course. And as it turns out, that really was, you know, the, I know that the, the public focuses on the, the standoff, which, which it was a big deal, but I think I've told you before, Kevin, the most important thing that happened that day was a prayer that was offered that morning just outside of the Bundy's ranch house. Um, and it was, it was a prayer that involved uh, my fellow sons of Liberty and Ammon and Ryan and a couple of other people. And um, I, I won't go into a lot of detail because it really was, it was a very sacred experience for me, but it was absolutely positively clear that God was very aware of what was going on there and that there was there was something of great spiritual significance that was taking place. I'll, I'll put it this way. Not a single one of us came away from there the same person that, that we showed up as. I mean, we it changed every one of us in a good way, as in it strengthened our faith in God and our trust in him rather than just on the arm of the flesh. Yeah, so I want to go back to something that you said about how there were signs that you couldn't leave the main road. If I recall, I think the Bundy house is off the main road. How did you get there if all these signs were there and all the enforcement was guarding it? Well, they, they didn't have guards keeping us away from the actual road to the ranch house. In fact, uh, interestingly enough, it was the militia that was was uh, limiting access to and from the Bundys. I mean, they had set up a security perimeter there. And, uh, you know, you had to be cleared by the people who were basically standing guard in order to get uh, to get into. Now, uh, when the you Bundy's say the militia, guard. are you talking about the militia for the Bundys or are you talking yes. about the national? OK, yeah, I'm talking I'm talking the, the common citizens who okay. showed up because they, they perceived that their fellow citizens were under siege. Okay. And I, look, when I, when I say they were under siege, I don't just mean that, oh, there was a bunch of, you know, armed federal agents out there shutting down the land. I mean, they set up. uh listening posts and observation posts. They had surveillance cameras. They had uh, hidden snipers. And, you know, it was, uh, it was such a, it was such an incredible show of force. When is the last time you can remember a militarized task force being sent out, a 200 man militarized task force at that being sent out over an alleged debt? Well, this guy owes us some money. We better get an army together and go out there and, and make sure that uh, we are armed to the teeth and ready to uh, to visit extreme violence on anybody who defies us. 
I mean, I can't think of another time where, where that might have happened. Maybe the Whiskey Rebellion. But, Ruby Ridge. Um, but I'd say Ruby Ridge, definitely. Well, at least in Ruby Ridge, they were dealing with someone who stood accused of, of criminal charges. Now, Randy Weaver was entrapped this is true. By, by an ATF informant. But um, there, was, there was no history of violence on the part of the Bundy family. In fact, the FBI did what are called threat assessments in which they evaluate, okay, how much training do these guys have? How well armed are they? What do we know about them? How likely are they to become you know, dangerous to us. I think they did at least three. They may have done as many as four of those threat assessments. Every single time the threat assessment came back as the lowest possible threat, meaning the FBI was told, look, as long as you don't back him into a corner, the worst thing you're looking at is maybe a punch in the nose if if you, uh, you know, push these people. But Dan Love, who was the special agent in charge for the BLM who went down there, was was on record. In fact, it was a, a BLM a Bureau of Land Management whistleblower, Larry Wooten, who blew the whistle on Dan Love saying this guy kept a kill list of people that he had either uh, gone after and and uh, arrested or or had uh, had gone after and intimidated to the point that they committed suicide. And he was determined he was his instruction for the agents was we're going to go in there. We're going to kick their teeth in and show them who is in charge. So it's like they wanted something to happen. And this is one of the reasons why the judge in 2018 dismissed the case against the Bundys with prejudice, because that official misconduct came out. Besides the fact that they sat on on exculpatory evidence that should have been provided in discovery, it came out during cross-examination in the trial during the end of 2017 that, oh yeah, by the way, they did have a video camera, which the prosecution had vehemently denied. And with that thread, they just kept pulling, the defense kept pulling, and soon the, the Fed's case just completely fell apart. But the bottom line is the feds went in there to provoke a violent reaction, and and I'm not ashamed to just tell in, in this, the plainest terms possible. It was divine intervention. It was God's influence that kept that from becoming an honest-to-goodness shooting war in the desert that afternoon. Oh, yeah. When you told me that uh, the BLM backed off, I was shocked. I thought for sure it was going to be another Ruby Ridge or Waco. I I was pleasantly shocked. And uh, I'll tell you this, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but I watched the siege in Burns, Oregon, when the last, what was it, four or five people, something like that, surrendered. If you remember, it was a four-hour standoff. By the way, I don't know if that video is still up on YouTube or other platforms, do not watch it with little kids around. It's very, very, very intense. Like watching a very intense movie. I'm glad that uh, my little niece at the time who was living with me was not present when I was watching it. She was in a completely different area of the house, but I would not have watched it in her presence. But yeah, I, I, I but I remember with that video, oddly enough, I really felt the spirit at the end of the video when all of them surrendered. I really felt that they were doing the right thing. Why do you think I felt the spirit behind that? Well, I can't speak for God, um, but I, I will tell you, having got to know Ammon Bundy over the years and knowing Ryan Bundy and their family, um, these are people who have a great love for God and have a great love for their fellow man. And the media portrays them as this one-dimensional cartoon character. They're violent cowboys, and they're insurrectionists, and they're out there causing trouble for everybody. Um, but that is that is a fictitious character that's been created strictly for the sake of the official narrative. 
people who got to know them, especially in Oregon. You know, there were people who still disagreed with Ammon who would go and actually meet with him in person and come away and saying, okay, I still disagree with the guy, but you got to admit, that dude talks to God. He is he is a, a sincere, God-fearing man, and at some level, they just had to respect that. Yeah. And so I, I can, you know, I... I know that uh, there are those who, who think that, uh, you know, there's there's no possible way that that uh, God would ever have a hand in in preserving people or protecting people. But, Kevin, I, I sat there. I had a front row seat to watch them delivered. I remember when they were when they were arrested following the Oregon um, occupation of the wildlife refuge. Um, Ammon was being interviewed in the Multnomah County Jail in Portland. And a reporter asked him, and this is after, you know, Lavoie Finnicum had been killed. He was asked, well, was it worth it? And I remember Ammon's answer being, as hard as this has been, yes, we have to say that it was worth it. And he said, and the day will come when you will see us delivered. And when it happens, you will know, everybody's going to know for certain that it was not because of us. It was because of God's hand delivering us. And I remember hearing that at the time thinking, wow. I mean, this guy's facing hundreds of years in prison if he's convicted of all the stuff the feds are throwing at him. And it just seemed like a really, a very bold thing to say, but he said it very humbly. He was just like, God will deliver us. And I sat there and watched it happen, first with their acquittal in Oregon, and then the various trials that took place in Nevada. Um, and when it was time for for Ammon and his family's trial, he, he and um, Ryan and, and Cliven, along with Ryan Payne, um, I was there. I got to sit in the courtroom and watch it happen. And the day the judge dismissed that case, I was in the courtroom. Um, I felt God's spirit as that case was dismissed. And you could hear whispers throughout that courtroom of people saying, thank God. Thank you, Jesus. You know, um, it's it's still, man, it still just just grabs my heart, you know, to this day. It was it was something that everybody thought was impossible until it happened. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that therefore, you know, you know, everybody should, should believe and follow every single thing that Ammon says. But I, I say this just as, um, as unlikely as it may seem, the pit that his enemies were digging to entrap him is a pit that they themselves fell into. And, and Ammon believes firmly that it was because of his family's willingness to follow God and to submit to whatever it took to follow him. And they suffered. Man, they suffered over that two years. Separated oh, yeah. from their families. He spent most of that time in, in solitary confinement. Um, they were horribly mistreated, horribly smeared, and, and tarred and feathered. And yet, uh, all that pressure and all that heat. Now, when we say of, tarred and feathered, we're talking about metaphorically speaking. Metaphorically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the hatred directed toward them is so disproportionate. To anything that they've done that, that would, you know, inspire that kind of a reaction. But but a lot of people are going just simply on what they know. And what they know is what's been told to them by very highly paid liars and propagandists within the mainstream media. Well, I'll be the first to say I haven't always agreed with Ammon's tactics. However, I can tell you that what you said was true. He is God-fearing. He is sincere. I've met Cliven. I've met Ammon. I've met Ryan, and uh, I will tell you, uh, Brian, I went to the Bundy Ranch back in 2019, and I felt the Spirit of God very strong in their home while I was eating a hamburger and zucchini, which, by the way, Cliven himself cooked for me. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I was not expecting to feel anything, but I felt very, very peaceful. And I, I knew that was the spirit of God in there. There was a, there was a very, um, I'll, I'll use the word liberal, but maybe progressive is, is a better moniker, um, podcaster. And, uh, and I'm not going to name her just because she took a lot of heat when she went to visit with the Bundys following the dismissal of the charges against them. And uh, she does a polygamy on, or I'm sorry, a podcast on polygamy. And, uh, you know, she's, she's kind of a, um, she's a critic of the LDS church, but she wanted to see for herself. And I, and I have to, to give her very high marks for having the integrity to, to actually go and see for herself. And she spent a couple of days with the Bundy family and she asked them hard questions about, you know, uh, their beliefs about what do you really think about race? What do you really think about this? And she came away and and she posted on on her Facebook page. She says this is this family has been terribly mistreated by the media. She says they they're just they're this one dimensional caricature that that doesn't even begin to to resemble who they really are. And it was so interesting. Her audience initially just turned on her and and castigated her for for daring to depart from the narrative. And I yet I thought it was one of the most courageous and honest things that I've seen. In that she actually went to them, she sat there with them, she had dinner with them, you know, the same kind of thing you saw. She prayed with them and came away with the understanding that whatever you may think of these people, they are good people through and through. However you may think they may be misguided, they're very decent folks. I want to go back real quick, and then we'll move on to covering the trial, then we'll talk about B.B. Cyrus. Why do you think, I mean, I, I know your answer is going to be divine intervention, but other than that, which I think is important, I don't want to downplay that at all but what made the government or what were the government agents thinking when they actually backed down because i really was afraid that this would become another ruby ridge oh it very well could have and there were guys within those ranks of those government agents who were they were ready to fight they wanted to fight they were saying let us go take care of this meaning they were ready to go start stacking bodies and killing people and I have to give credit, you know, it, it was the local, not the sheriff, Doug Gillespie, you know, he was being more of a politician than a sheriff, but it was his undersheriff who stepped up and actually got the BLM to finally back down and withdraw as they were supposed to do in the first place. You know, what what happened was people met on the day of, of that uh, that standoff. We met at this rally place down by Bundy Ranch. And there were speeches that were given. The sheriff came and announced the BLM is withdrawing its assets. They're shutting down the operation. But they still had a bunch of Cliven's cattle. And Cliven was like, okay, I want my cattle back. When do I get my cattle back? And the sheriff had no answer for him. So Cliven told the sheriff, you either go get those cattle for us right now, or we will meet back here in an hour, and we will take matters into our own hands. And at the time, I was like, whoa, man, hey, we just had a peaceful, you know, end, you know, brought about here. That's That sounds very dangerous to me. But in the end, you know, the sheriff left. And so the supporters gathered there at the rally area. And it was decided, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up, uh, I think it's Toquap Wash. And we're going to approach the BLM pan, pens. And we're going to get those those cattle back. Now, they weren't like, we're going to storm them. We're going to assault them from this position and that position. But uh, there were people who were there providing armed overwatch just in case those BLM rangers got froggy, which they did. They, they took up defensive positions. Instead of withdrawing like they were supposed to do, they took up fighting positions and were just waiting for the protesters and then threatening to shoot them when they approached. And so it was the, it was the undersheriff 
who stepped forward and basically got them to back down and leave. But I've talked to other people who were there too, who said, you know, there was a moment there where there were guns pointed at each other and there was this horrible sense of what's about to happen here. And, and you know, the, the friend who, who told me this said, I don't know how to describe it other than it was divine intervention. And he says, I haven't been to church in years, but he says something happened and the guns lowered. And then, you know, there was some talking back and forth. And um, eventually, you know, the undersheriff stepped up there and, and the cattle were freed and, and were taken home. But of course, the federal government doesn't, doesn't like to come off the loser. And so, you know, they, they were laying in wait, you know, trying to build the case of, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to get the Bundys? So when, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but when Clavin said, we'll come back in an hour and if my cattle isn't here, we'll take action. What would he have done? Do you think? I think exactly what they did. And, and I, and I say that with the understanding I asked Ryan and I asked uh, Ammon both. In fact, I believe I asked Cliven too. Is there anything you would have done different? You know, this is after they were, were out of prison. Their trial was over. Is there anything you would have done different on April 12th? And every single one of them said, no, it had to unfold the way that it did. And wow. I, you know, I, I'll take them at their word. You know, they, it's not like, yeah, you know, they, they were just looking for the most pain-free, you know, resistanceless effort to, you know, the, the, the path of least resistance in order to, to make this happen. They, they did what needed to be done. And I think they did it in the way that it needed to happen. And in the end, their cattle were returned and, you know, they've been best since 2018. They have been back there just uh, happily pursuing, you know, their, their ranching and, and enjoying life as, as they should have been. Yeah. So what what was it like covering the Bundy trial? I I didn't realize that you were in Oregon. I know you were in Nevada covering. I it wasn't on in Facebook. Oregon. Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't, I didn't I didn't cover the the Oregon trial. Um, okay. But but I was asked by their family to to help with the uh, the Las Vegas trial. Um, they were looking for a voice that could could provide a credible, sincere point of view on what was happening that didn't have to be strained through mainstream media filters. And somehow through, I, I believe there was, I think there was, there was some divine, um, you know, providence that took place there, but uh, I was brought to their awareness. And when, when someone said, well, what if we had Brian Hyde uh, go down there and, and cover that um, both Carol Bundy, as well as Jeanette Finnicum said, yes, that's the guy. That's the guy we want to, to speak for us. And so I, you know, I went down there really going, man, look, I'm not a reporter. I'm not a, a court reporter. I don't even know what kind of a job I can, can do here, but I'm happy to do it just because I know those families and I love those families. And so as I sat there in that courtroom that first day, feeling hopelessly out of place, um, I had this prayer in my heart going, Lord, why am I here? What am I even doing here? I mean, what, what do I bring to this situation? And I very clearly had the thought come into my mind just be a good witness. And I thought, okay, I can do that. I can be a good witness. And that's, that's all I set out to do. And, uh, and like I said, I had a front row seat to seeing that unfold in, in ways that I, I don't know that anybody really anticipated it could. Well, I remember, I think you did it. If I remember, didn't you do it on a, I think you did it on your own Facebook page, didn't you? Um, I did it through a Facebook page, which at the time was called uh, who's next. And I shared oh, it on my, okay. my Facebook page as well, but um, but I was doing it under the auspices of 
of who's next. And then, of course, you know, with social media, this is before the real uh, censorship and throttling of social media like we know it today had started. So uh, those messages went viral. And gosh, you know, we started with a few hundred views and a few thousand. And, you know, by the time we did the last video outside the courthouse as the charges were dismissed, we were getting hundreds of thousands of views. And actually, news media itself was lamenting, well, there's this kind of parallel media that has sprung up. But they were coming to us for information because we had access to the family and uh, and they didn't and it wasn't just me it was individuals like john lamb and kelly stewart and doug knowles and others who were, were likewise there uh, sherry dovali putting out that information free of these mainstream or corporate media spinmeisters why well, I, th I think facebook did throttle you because i actually had i subscribed to you and who's next but face it, it never came up in my feed. I had to actually manually search. So I think even back then they were censoring you a little bit. I just happened to know how to get around it. Well, I'd wear it as a badge of conf of, uh, of as a compliment and uh, a badge of honor if if they felt that it was having enough influence that they needed to somehow you know tamp it down. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go to the current day, Baby Cyrus. Now, I've said on a few podcasts, if you want to know who Baby Cyrus is, look it up. Well, today we're going to talk about Baby Cyrus. Now, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this information. This is why I bought you on. You know, I could have bought Ammon on, but I know Ammon's busy. I have access to Ammon, well, partly, but you have more access to him than I do at this point. And I know Ammon's a busy man, so that's why I bought you on. But correct me if I'm wrong, Baby Cyrus is a person a little, well, I guess he's what, almost two years old now, isn't he? He's about a year and a half. Yeah, okay. So he's three and a half years old. And no, he's, he's about a year and a year and a half. He was just a year old. Um, I'm sorry, he's he's maybe he's two. I, I apologize. Yeah, I think he, he, is, he was he, he was almost a year old when he was medically taken from his family. I'm going to use the term kidnapped, even though St. Luke's doesn't like that. But um, because a doctor got child protective services involved over the rescheduling of an appointment, um, that's, that's why he was taken from his family. He was not quite a year old when that happened. Okay. So he, yeah. So he was, I think seven months old, if I'm not mistaken. And he was having, I can't remember the syndrome, but it was basically his mother was trying to wean him off of breast milk, feed him solids, and he kept vomiting, and it was severe vomiting. It wasn't just vomiting one night here and one night there. It was severe. And they took him to a pathologist, I guess, or some holistic doctor, and I don't know exactly how that was other than the doctor at some point said you're going to have to go to St. Luke's because the baby's dehydrated and you're going to have to put in Ivy. Now, I don't think the doctor met any ill will. That's probably legitimate. Maybe they didn't have the equipment there. Maybe the hospital at that time could do something that the holistic doctor couldn't do. You know, I don't want to get into a huge debate over holistic medicine, Western medicine, but sometimes there are things that holistic medicine cannot do uh, i'm voice of experience here holistic medicine does a lot but there are times where you have to let western medicine interfere although this wasn't even western medicine this was an iv 
that was uh, full of liquid that would hydrate the baby. Well, when Marissa and Levi, I can't, what are their last names? I can't remember. Mm, I want to say Anderson. Yeah, that's right. Anderson. When they got there, the nurse, Natasha Erickson. She's actually the doctor. She's the doctor. doctor. Yeah, okay. The doctor, Natasha Erickson, was very hostile to the Andersons, Marissa and Levi, when they found out that baby Cyrus was not vaccinated. I'm not talking about the COVID vaccine. I'm talking about vaccines and vaccinated in general. And the family, the parents, Marissa and Levi, were getting ready to leave the hospital and they were threatened by Natasha Erickson that if you leave, we will call CPS. And I guess they stayed for a matter of days. I thought they just left and, or I thought they just stayed for a few more hours or something, but I guess it was a couple of few days. Then on day four, Dr. Natasha Erickson said, well, okay, you can leave, but you got to see this guy Aaron Dykstrom, who is a nurse of practitioner medicine, which I understand now has got its name changed to I can't remember what, but uh, at the time it was practitioner medicine and baby Cyrus was under 35 grams. And so they had an appointment to weigh him on Thursday, which I believe was March 10th, wasn't it? March 10th Uh of 2022. Yeah, couldn't couldn't tell you the exact day. Yeah, I believe that's what it was. And so they did. And then they said, I need the Aaron Dykstrom, Dykstrom said, well, I need you to come back in tomorrow. Well, Marissa was sick. And this is at a time, you know, the pandemic was uh, cooling up, but there was still that mentality. Oh, I'm sick. I better not go anywhere. And Marissa was feeling under the weather. So she called and left a voicemail. Well, this was well before 10 o'clock on Friday, March 11th. And I know this because it was the week before St. Patrick's Day, and I remember what I was doing at that point, so I can safely say it was Friday, March 11th, 2022. Well, uh, Brian, help me out on this uh, later, but apparently, I guess, uh, Aaron Dextrom called CPS and a detective named John... uh, Jeffrey Fuller, who I assume was he in Meridian? Well, I assume he was in Meridian, correct? Meridian. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was the Meridian PD that actually stopped him and and was looking for the baby in order to take him from his parents. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, we'll get there. And so somehow I don't understand what transpired here, but somehow, well, I know that uh, they came to. Diego Rodriguez's home, who is Marissa's father, Diego Rodriguez uh, did not let them in to see baby Cyrus, even though in the report of Jeff Fuller, they clearly knew that baby Cyrus wasn't there. And so what happened next is they pinged Diego Rodriguez's cell phone, found out that he was at a dinner and waited for a few hours. Now, how did they know that Marissa was there, though, if they were only pinging his cell phone? Or were they pinging pinging Marissa's as well? This is where I'm a little fuzzy. Uh, I couldn't tell you. I don't don't have access to to what what the detectives were doing. 
And by the way, you can find this all out on freedomman.org. Diego Rodriguez did a huge uh, conference about this. In fact, uh, there is a link to the show notes. They're in the show notes. So uh, somehow they found Marissa and found out that she was at this dinner at a family friend's house. And the police were just brutal. Uh, it was Officer Sean King that pulled Marissa and Levi over. And there was this big conversation. Basically, the police said, well, you give us baby Cyrus or you're going to jail. And Marissa said, well, I need to be with him. Yeah, probably because of breastfeeding and whatever else. You don't separate a child that young from the mother or the parents. You just don't, unless there's a real serious reason. And even in the reports, one of the doctors at St. Luke's said that the baby was in perfect health. I don't know if that's true uh, as far as the baby being in perfect health, considering that he was 35 grams underweight. But, you know, obviously he wasn't about ready to die or anything like that. And so he was well, he was well enough that they were they were ready to put him into a foster family that night. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So. To make a long story short, after the confrontation, the police ripped baby Cyrus out of Marissa's arms. Marissa got into jail, and yeah, the, the St. Luke's Hospital was doing all kinds of, my understanding, uh, IV, putting all kinds of IVs in him. I Did they do a CAT scan or not? I, I can't, I don't think they did, or did they? That I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. I, they, I know that they did several tests, though. And yeah, CPS at some point uh, was getting ready to put the baby into a, uh, a foster home. And it was because of Ammon Bundy and his crowd that got out there and protested. And this is something I'm a little fuzzy on. I've read reports where Ammon supposedly blocked the way for traffic to come into the hospital for emergencies. Is that true? Or why does that report even exist? Help me out on that. Cause I'm a little they were protest. They were protesting outside of, of St. Luke's. I believe they're in Meridian. And I believe it was the hospital who said, well, we don't dare bring ambulances in here because these protesters are present, you know, in the, uh, the emergency entrance there. I don't know that they were deliberately blocking. I don't think that the, it, it, to me, it sounds very out of character that they would be denying anybody else access to the hospital, but they were certainly there. And, and St. Luke's and their attorneys, Holland and Hart, you know, they're um, the, the law firm they've used to, to go out there and promote their side of it has been very adamant about how, well, this was a matter of safety. And, you know, and so they've been very prone to exaggeration and it wouldn't surprise me to see them saying, well, yes, they were blocking, you know, the entrance and preventing people, but that's simply them trying to spin it. I don't believe that there was any deliberate uh, trying to prevent people from accessing the, the hospital. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't sure that that was true. Okay. I had heard that. But anyway, so to make a long story short, Ammon was holding, well, I guess it was Diego Rodriguez that was holding press conferences every day. I assume Ammon was at those press conferences, correct? Um, I don't know because I did not see all of those press conferences. I know okay. he was very actively involved, but he also was arrested, I believe, that first night. Yes, him and his campaign manager, because remember, he was running for the governor of Idaho last year. Yes. And I think they were in jail, what, for about an hour, if I remember correctly. And then some, you know, somebody probably came and bailed him out, and then 
Yeah. So let's fast forward to what April. Uh, well, after all this was going on, baby Cyrus came back. Uh, St. Luke's was uh, CPS, I guess, gave baby Cyrus back to the family because of a lot of pressure. It wasn't very long. It was about a week, wasn't it? About six days. Six days. Okay. And so, um, yeah, six days. And then he gave the, the CPS gave the baby back. And I remember being ever so happy. I figured it would happen. And it was because of all the protests and all that. Now, I don't think that these protests lit up, did they? I don't know if they were going on 24 hours a day, but they, they were always going on during the afternoon, weren't they? Um, they were pretty constant. There were there were several hundred people who absolutely would not let the matter go. And and that's probably one of the reasons why St. Luke's eventually relented. And And, of course, the important thing, too, is um, charges were never, you know, there were no charges that were filed or pursued against Marissa or Levi or or their their family at that point. Yeah. So at some point, Ammon gets charges because of disruption. Well, Ammon trespassing, trespassing. Yeah. Well, I don't know what kind of trespassing it is. I don't know what kind of legal authority they had. I don't know if, you know, because so basically heard... because because he was on the property of St. Luke's and would not leave when he was told to leave. That's why he was arrested for trespass. Okay. But the point is though, he was not violent. He was not, you know, I, I don't see why St. Well, I guess from their viewpoint, I can see why St. Luke's told them to leave because it was uh, making them look bad. But other than that, there was no violence and just chanting and protesting, correct? That's what I understand as well. Yeah. I mean, Frank, look, if, if St. Luke's could show, well, they were breaking windows or they were assaulting staff or whatever, believe me, they would be showing that 24-7 to try to make the case of this is why we have to go after him. But they didn't. Oh, yeah. You know, the protesters didn't. They were noisy. Yes. And I'm sure it was obnoxious to St. Luke's and, and others who were trying hard to to not have the egg on their face pointed out. But the fact that these protesters did that and the, again, hundreds of them came together and would not relent. That's the reason why baby Cyrus was returned to his parents, why no charges were filed against his parents, nothing pertaining to neglect. But uh, but it still leaves the problem of, OK, so uh, St. Luke's is looking bad. You know, the, the Child Protective Services and Idaho Department of Health and Welfare isn't looking so good. The Meridian Police Department, same ones who arrested Sarah Walton Brady for taking her kids to the park in uh, April of 2020. They're looking pretty bad. You know, so what do we do about it? And it sounds like the answer was, well, we hand a blank check to Holland and Hart, which is one of the biggest law firms in the state of Idaho, and basically sick them on Diego and on Ammon with instructions to do whatever it takes. Bring these guys down. Yeah, and so, meanwhile, it was a civil suit, and according to the Idaho Constitution, you do not have to participate in a civil suit. In other words, you don't have to come and defend yourself if you don't want to. And then the Judge Lynn Norton files a, filed an arrest warrant, which is very unconstitutional. That arrest warrant rescinded, but then you had, at the same time, a sheriff from Jim County come and snoop around. And that's when a confrontation with Ammon and the sheriff got ugly. Well, yeah, you, you don't snoop around somebody's place unless you have a warrant. That was completely unconstitutional. I don't care how much you may not like a person. You don't do that. 
And that's the media wants to make it. Oh, the sheriff uh, of Jim County and Ammon had a big confrontation. But what they didn't tell you is the sheriff was snooping around. And I found this out from Ryan Bundy, by the way. And uh, Diego Rodriguez also talks about it on his Zoom conference that he had a few weeks ago. So, and there was a, at one point you said in one of your videos that Ammon had a stack. They've been sending him stacks of paperwork that he had not done. And my understanding is part of the reason, other than the fact that there's too much paperwork, part of the reason if he did all the paperwork, he'd have to hire a whole bunch of attorneys and then he would set himself up for failure, correct? That's my understanding. This is how Rick Herber got in trouble. He kept doing all this paperwork, uh, correct? Um, that I don't know. Okay, well, that's what I've heard. And anyway, so everything, when this, when this all came out, uh, the sheriff was snooping around. Ammon had guards at his house 24 hours a day. Seven days a week, not armed. Oh, well, maybe they were armed, but not uh, guns pointed at anybody. They were just there in case something should happen. I think a lot of that's cooled down, correct? As far as I know, you know, Ammon was out of country in uh, Cabo San Lucas, I believe, in, in Mexico here um, a week ago and came back into the country and was actually a little bit worried that, you know, going through customs that, you know, if they, they check his identity, they're going to find, well, hey, there's an arrest warrant for this guy. But he got safely through there, and he was joking around about how, you know, the news media is talking, well, you know, here's Ammon hiding behind the windows of his compound, you know, with his AK-47. No, not at all. That's that's not at all what was what was happening. He was actually out of country enjoying a vacation with his family. It's it, I, At one point, you have to wonder, Kevin, why isn't somebody asking, how did it ever get to the point that St. Luke's is so desperate to see Ammon in jail? You know, he pled guilty. He took a guilty plea to the uh, trespassing charge, which was a criminal charge. And they said, okay, then we want you to pay this fine. I think it was a $1,200 fine. And we want him to see this many days in jail. And Ammon said, okay, we accept that. And then... Upon accepting it, I'm sure everybody's on board. Yep, we're all on board. Okay. Ammon said, now, Judge, keep in mind that I have credit for days served, so I won't actually have to go to jail for this. And St. Luke's pitched a fit because they really wanted to see him in jail. They wanted to go back then on the agreement they had just made. And interestingly enough, I think two, maybe three different people stepped up to Ammon at the close of those proceedings and said, I'm here to pay that fine for you. Or God told me to give you the money to pay that fine. So then they would continue the civil suit, and this is where they're going now, where, again, a civil disagreement is something that should be handled, if not with money, then per they place liens against his property so that he can't sell it or do anything with it until those liens are taken care of. But instead, the judge keeps the case open. She allows for the complaint to be amended multiple times, taking it from, you know, 50000 to 300000 to $7.5 million in damages, plus legal costs being sought, and now puts a slap or, or, or I'm sorry, before that, she puts a, a gag order, slaps that on, on Diego and on Ammon. You can't even talk about this case and then finds them guilty of contempt when they do continue to talk about it because she has no right to restrict their First Amendment rights. No, she doesn't. St. Luke's keeps pushing for why haven't you arrested him? Why aren't you going to arrest this guy? They want him in jail. They want him financially destroyed. Honestly, I, I, I know this is a, a horrible thing to say, but I really believe that... Uh, St. Luke's and those who are supporting them, including a number of politicians and, and bureaucrats, really would like to see some justification for taking 
Ammon out the same way that Lavoy Finicum was taken out. In other words, create a situation in which there is absolutely zero margin for error and then justify deadly force on the part of the state if somebody makes a mistake or somebody makes what they think is a furtive movement or otherwise, you know, would, would justify them going to escalation to deadly force. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think Ammon has mobilized his base where if something happened, action would be taken from the citizens and there would be hell to pay for law enforcement? Now, maybe this is idealistic thinking, but do you think maybe this is true? That sounds like what the uh, the Idaho statesman kept trying to ask. Well, are you saying that your supporters won't resort to violence if police come to get you? And Ammon, they, they kept saying Ammon wouldn't answer this question. He wouldn't answer that question. And look, nowhere is he calling for anybody to, you know, initiate violence. But he has pointed out, and I think he has rightly pointed out, there comes a point where when you are suffering injustice, and even if it's coming under the cover of official business or under the color of law, there comes a point where you have to choose. Do I stand up for myself? Do I defend what is precious to me or not? And so far, thankfully, cooler heads have prevailed. And, and the state or those who are working on behalf of the state have not felt the need to escalate it to the point where, where they're going to force a solution of some kind. I think the bottom line is Ammon is showing absolutely no uh, predilection, you know, towards towards violence or no uh, preference towards violence. He's been very careful about that. I don't think his followers or the people, I shouldn't say followers, his supporters, the people who understand if it can be done to him, it can be done to any of us. Absolutely. I don't think that they're, they're, they're not looking for violence either. But you have people who are looking for violence. I would look at the corporate media. They're the ones who are pimping for this hard. Um, St. Luke's through their law firm, Holland and Hart, are pimping hard for violence. There are some people, although I look, I know the sheriff there in Jim County gets a lot of uh, criticism, but frankly, I think cooler heads have prevailed at least to the point where they realize it's really not in the interest of the public to go turn this into to some kind of a confrontation or a situation where it doesn't have to be one. Is the community a safer place? You know, is it still a safe place with with Ammon out there, even though this civil arrest warrant has been been issued by this this out of control judge? You know, the answer is it, it doesn't it's not going to make any difference to the community if they if they were to go out there and, and arrest him. But it could set in motion some very serious events if they decide to force the issue. And and some will take that as, as a threat. But it's like, at what point do you, do you acknowledge that sometimes out of control government has to be stood up to? They have to be reined in. Well, you take it to court, do you? And with a judge like Lynn Norton. Do you, do you expect that things are going to be rectified or are they going to be made worse? You can see the quandary, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I was asking uh, if something were to happen to Ammon, would his base be mobilized to do something? I, I'm not suggesting violence, but just do something to make the public change their mind or something. Maybe that's a little idealistic. I, I think it would, it would prove the point that Ammon has been making all along, and that is that there are people in positions of authority and in positions of power and influence who are misusing that to abuse and destroy other people's lives. So if something were to happen to him, I believe that it would it would finally pull that mask back far enough for people who might be on the fence would recognize, oh my gosh, that really is what's happening here. 
And I can't tell you what happens at that point other than, you know, the first the first response that, that I think people should be considering is how do I peacefully withdraw my consent from such individuals, whether it be a corporation like St. Luke's or whether it be, you know, a, a municipality or whether it be, you know, a, a state agency? How do I withdraw my consent and and distance myself from those systems that are trying to destroy me or trying to rule my life? you know, uh, in in violation of what their proper role is within government. Yeah, I don't have an answer because uh, I don't want to get off topic here, but, you know, look at what's happening at Target. They had uh, rainbow colors on children's clothing, swimming suits. Yet, I had to go to Target this week because they had something that I needed and I couldn't find it anywhere else. Now, Target did not have this particular item. And yes, I did find it elsewhere. And I was actually lucky I found it because I bought the last of that item at a grocery store here in Billings. But usually I'd go to Target. And if they had it, I would have bought it. What do you do? Uh, how do you get yourself out of the system when, in fact, a lot of these companies have what you need or the necessities or things to make your life better? What do you do? I don't know. You find an alternative, improvise, adapt, overcome, or maybe you choose to do without. I know this is, this is a horrible thing to suggest, but you know, uh, what did we do with life, you know, during life before Netflix? There was a lot of stuff we did. Maybe we yeah. could discover things that would be a better use of our time. I, I'm not saying that people need to be defined by, you know, who they're boycotting and who they're against. But if there's something that, that offends you or something that, that you feel like I just can't support that, can't in good conscience give my allegiance to that then withdraw your support vote with your feet vote with your wallet and you know that's that's the best way to to go about it oh yeah but then you know what do you do if um i'm trying to think of a good example well me being a blind person i'm not trying to throw a pity party here but my gosh, technology has benefited me like no other. I'm not about ready to give up my smartphone. I've used my smartphone when I've been lost before. There is a service that I can tap into called IRA, Artificial Remote Intelligence Agent. And if I'm lost, they'll help me get back on track or they'll help me find a business or whatever. And I don't want to go without this. And it was hard to live without it before I knew. So, you know, and... uh you know, when an email comes in or, you know, a company that sells a screen reader, they're devoted to woke causes, but they're the best screen reader out there. What do I do? I, I can't answer that. This is the beauty of freedom is it's something that uh, we have to reach for and, and achieve at the individual level. Okay, group solutions aren't going to work. You want to live in a world where individuals are allowed to thrive and enjoy their freedom, then you've got to build that world as an individual. That's going to come down to the individual decisions and standards that you choose to live by. Yeah. Well, back to Ammon. Sorry to get off on a tangent there, but I think it's worth discussing. But what do you think happens to Ammon next? And where do we go from here? And what can we do as people? Yeah, I, I don't know what happens next. Right now, it's just there's kind of a waiting game. Um, I know Ammon's wife, Lisa, when they were coming back through customs, you know, in his video, he asked her, how are you doing? And she said, I'm stressed. 
I've been enjoying this wonderful week, you know, of this vacation and and uh, just being away from all of the the nastiness and the the antagonism. And she goes, and now we're headed back. You know, we're going back, and then that stress is going to resume. So that's a question that they're facing as well. And and sadly, it's it's a question that largely is in the hands of people who have done things wrong. And I'm looking at St. Luke's and Child Protective Services, Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, and and yes, even the the some of the police departments, and thinking, what are you guys going to do? Are you ever going to admit that uh, that you've done something wrong, that it was entirely unnecessary to kidnap baby Cyrus? Because none of this would have happened had they not done that. In fact, you know, the attention that St. Luke's is getting, and they're they're talking, oh, there's defamation, and people are are upset, and they're withholding donations and so forth. None of this would be an issue had they simply said, you know what, we made a mistake, we're sorry. If they had, had performed a mea culpa, you would find people are much more forgiving than, than you might have suspected. But because they've dug in and they've demanded, you know, that we have to be portrayed in the best possible light, they're experiencing what's known as the Streisand effect. Or the more you tell people, don't pay attention to that, people are like, pay attention to what? Here, let me see. Move over. I want to see. And it just it inadvertently draws even more attention to the thing you're trying to keep out of the public's uh, consciousness. Yeah. Well, I don't think that this is going to be the last. Uh, I'm sure that there's going to be other cases similar to this. And this leads into another question. We're going to get philosophical here. Do you think the freedom movement in this country is doomed? Do you think that we're going to go complete communistic before the second coming? We'll get a little religious here. What do you think? Do you think the freedom movement is done with? Are we doomed? What What do you think? Oh, well, again, I don't know. I don't have the gift of prophecy, and I cannot speak as a prophet. Um, I do see that there are prophetic accounts that say that things are going to get pretty ugly uh, prior to the Savior's second coming. And I, I can only assume that that will mean here as well as elsewhere. I don't think we're magically going to be shielded. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I believe the Book of Mormon is a perfect scriptural guide for how followers of Christ can live in times of great conflict and contention and still be, you know, faithful followers of Christ. So if if that's true, if that book was in fact um, preserved for the ages and brought forth in our time by the gift and power of God, then I have to believe that uh, there's a reason that that kind of wisdom would be made available to us to help us understand what is expected of us and what we will need to do in order to uh, to make it through what whatever lies between us and the second coming of Christ. Well, since you brought up the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, I didn't want to go here, but since you brought it up, does it bother you that all we're hearing from our leaders, especially President Nelson, is, and by the way, we're not converting people, but does it bother you that we, you know, we're hearing, oh, avoid contention, avoid this, avoid this, and yet we're in the middle of it when we're fighting for freedom. Why aren't the brethren talking about the Constitution, like they used to, and I, I know I'm going to get, oh, because they're 501c3, I get that. But does it bother you that the general authorities are not talking about it like they did 40, 50 years ago? Well, it makes me wonder if the time for uh, heeding their warnings was 40, 50 years ago. I think that there comes, I think we're given a chance to to heed the warnings that were given, you know, through through God's servants. 
And when we fail to heed those warnings or turn our backs on them or worse, just openly rebel, you know, um, the Lord gives us that opportunity to do so. But part of uh, the, the signal that, okay, we may have crossed the limit of, of God's long-suffering and patience is when we no longer hear those warnings. I'd be much more concerned that we're not hearing anything about that than the fact that, uh, oh, they mentioned this or mentioned that again. If you notice, at least in the last few general conferences, much of the, the instruction that is being given is focused primarily on becoming more Christ-like in every way possible. Yes, and And absolutely. this jives perfectly. I'm going to bring it full circle. This jives very perfectly with, with what I have learned through my association with the Bundy family. At every step, no matter what they have faced, and they have faced, I think, some very formidable obstacles, their goal has always to been has always been to be as Christ-like as possible and as willing to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit and the inspiration that they receive from God. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that, you know, they're waiting, please, God, tell us who to go out there and, and slay. They're, they're, they're talking about in every move that they make, every step that they take, they seek guidance and, and assurance. Lord, are we doing what you would have us do? Is there a chance that I'm wrong? Is there a chance that, that I have misunderstood something? And if, if so, will you help me see that so that I don't go in a direction that's, that's counter to what you would have me do? And it takes humility to do that. That's not the mark of a, a proud or arrogant person, which you'll find most of the people accusing them are usually pretty proud, arrogant people which I guess is why they, they, uh, they tend to attack them like they do. The, the principles that they see on display, the simple faith of this family of ranchers, down-to-earth people who don't use big fancy words to impress people around them, you know, it, it puts them to shame. Their, their own shallowness and superficialities is exposed every time, you know, they, they encounter the simplicity of people who simply believe in, in following God, being true to their faith, and, and in Ammon's case, Every single time I've seen that he has faced the most severe persecution, it's never been anything self-serving. Every time it's been him standing up for someone else, whether it was standing up for his parents and, and his dad, whose cattle were being rustled, whether it was you know standing up for the Hammond family up in Oregon, standing up you know for uh, for uh, the Andersons and baby Cyrus, he's been willing to put his neck on the line, and you know the the idea of Greater love hath no man than he who's willing to lay down his life, you know, for his brother. I think that, uh, you know, Ammon hasn't had to lay down his life, but he has uh, he has put just about everything else on the line in order to do that. I see that as a pretty selfless move as opposed to the selfish grifter, you know, mantra that seems to be uh, so popular among his detractors. Well, I want to go back to something that you said about the general authorities. I don't want to make this an LDS Live podcast, but uh, because <laughs> this is the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone, but because we are both of us Latter-day Saints, I want to cover this. And I know many of you out there listening are, because after all, this is the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. So obviously there's going to be members of the church listening. What you said earlier made me think of something that I haven't thought of. Remember in the Bible, I can't remember which book, but remember when God constantly warned the people we cannot have kings in the Old Testament. And one of the prophets, I can't remember who, one of the prophets said, no, you can't have a king. And they said, well, everybody has a king. We, we want a king. Finally, after persistence, God budged 
he gave them a king. And look what happened. King after king after king got corrupt. Yeah, they started out good and they got corrupt. Do you think maybe there's a parallel with what you said about the warning? And, and I'm guilty too. I didn't heed the warning for a long time. I'm paying the price. Uh, do you think maybe there's a parallel here? You there? There could be. There could oh. be. Yeah, it's uh um look, I you know, when when Lavoy Finnegan was killed, I, I I was so sad and so disappointed to see such a good man um, you know, needlessly taken from us by people who had been told, well, he's a domestic terrorist and you know he's he's dangerous and whatnot. And and at the time I you know, I I was really like, man, why would the Lord let something like that happen? And, and a friend said, well, he says, you know, sometimes we have to remember that uh, everybody has uh, the agency. They, everybody has free will. God isn't going to interfere with our ability to choose. But there are times where he allows the wicked to seal their own damnation. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, that that's when, when I said I'm not saying that only they can be wicked. Each of us can be wicked, maybe in ways that we don't even consider. And so I think it's incumbent on us to be very, very careful that uh, we're not being so proud and puffed up and certain that I know exactly, you know, what God would do if he knew what I knew. Um, we've got to be careful that we're not, uh, you know, marching to our own damnation or sealing our own damnation just through through pride and through through stubbornness. Yeah, good point. And I want to bring this full circle back to what you said about Ammon being Christ-like. He put a video out there saying to St. Luke's, come and get everything I'll have. I'll, I'll have to work for everything all over, but come and take everything. Now, you could argue and saying, oh, he just made that video because he knows that St. Luke's isn't going to come through with that promise. Maybe, but maybe there's a deeper reason about uh, what you said about him being Christ-like, that he made that video. Would I, would I be correct? Very well could be. Yeah. I don't know. I Look, my my I guess my main point here and. And uh, maybe this should be my closing point is, yeah, we have to be humble. Yep. It choose choose to be humble, choose to to seek, you know, guidance from your creator. and and you won't find yourself in a position where you have to be compelled to be humble. I, I worry, Kevin, that uh, that as a nation, we have been so proud and so willing to to believe that we are all that and we can do whatever we want because we're so exceptional that uh, we we've ceased to understand what humility before God is. And I think that there's going to come a point where we're going to be humbled in a very large national sense. We are going to find ourselves humbled. I would rather be one of those people who has uh, has chosen to to accept and embrace humility before it was absolutely a necessity and I had no other choice to. Because usually under those circumstances, you got to be standing in the very rock bottom place in order to to really be humble. If you if you have to be humble, yeah. Oh, Brian, you do a, where can people find Ammon's videos and where can people find you? Cause I know you do a podcast called the Brian Hyde show. So where do you, where do you find, uh, where do people find Ammon and you? Ammon has a YouTube channel and I believe it's just Ammon Bundy. You can, you can search it up. He has been okay. putting out some really good videos lately. I don't know who's helping him with the production value of his videos, but they're excellent. They're, they're very YouTube good. YouTube hasn't banned him. Well, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I'm surprised too because he's he's quite a quite a voice for freedom, but yeah. uh, 
you can you can find him on there. If you want to check out my show, you can go to thebrianhydeshow.com. I'm on uh, most of the major uh, podcasting platforms. And if if you uh, prefer if you prefer smaller bites, more digestible bites of uh, of encouragement, I would encourage you check out my Substack, which is hideinplainsight.substack.com. That's H Y D E in plain sight at substack uh, Yes. Okay. It's just it's it's a little less than two yeah. minute long daily truth bomb, non political, but uh, but it's speaking encouragement for people who are willing to to uh, to see the truth, speak the truth, embrace the truth, regardless of what's going on around them. Well, Brian, let me ask you this, and if you can't stay with me after the podcast, I want to talk to you about something. But um, what is it that you like, or that you have liked, or you still like? about covering the Bundys and being a follower of them and all those things? Well, I consider myself a friend more than a follower. And, and, and this is, to me, this is the epitome of what good leadership is. Good leadership creates more leaders. And that's something that I, I believe I have seen, um, not just Ammon, but other members of his family do. Ammon's pretty visible, but uh, his People's Rights Network is all about encouraging people to step up and be leaders where they have influence in their own communities, their own neighborhoods, their own households. So it's it's that desire to to be right with God, to promote freedom for everybody, and to encourage other people to stand up and to lead and to trust themselves to lead as God directs them. I think there's there's great wisdom in that, and that's one of the reasons I'm I'm very proud to call Ammon my friend. Um, you know. I know some people some people don't know what to think of him because they've only been exposed to a very limited view. I wish that they had the chance to get to know him at a personal level like I have. And I think it would make a world of difference if they could. And and if if not, I would just ask them to please consider, is there a possibility that what you know of him and his family is incomplete? And if the answer is, well, yes, yeah, it's, it's incomplete, that's great. Maybe it would be a good idea to to fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, I forgot about it. Um, I was listening to Glenn Beck a few weeks ago. And I guess him and Mark Levin did this great special on the Blaze Network. I don't subscribe to the Blaze. I have my reasons. I'm not going to get into it right now. Having said that, I still think there is more good to Glenn than bad. But he said something that I just kind of laughed at. He said, if we're going to stop this corruption, call the attorney generals of all the states and have them expose the Biden crime family because they've done crime in every state. And I just laughed and I thought, what a joke. Uh, People are not going to do that. And, you know, maybe if all the state attorney generals had hundreds of phone calls coming in, yeah, maybe something could get done. But I think what people are doing at the grassroots level is more effective than what Glenn Beck is suggesting, don't you? I think politics is inherently flawed. And and hopefully people are starting to catch on to this right now. I'll give you yeah. the example. Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Right now, they are sniping at each other. They are, I mean, they're, they're yeah, worse Yeah, and I think that's the, very harmful to the country, but go ahead. It is. They're, they're, like, they're like a couple of junior high school students, you know, having yep. a whizzing contest in the restroom, you know, and, and it's, it's, I'm sorry, that's kind of vulgar, but really, that's about what, what they're doing. They're just sniping yeah. at each other. If they were concerned about where this country is headed and they really wanted to help, they would find a way to put those differences aside and work together to take down the, the 
people and the organizations that are doing so much to destroy everything that is good and all the traditions and all of the, the principles and practices that have made our freedom possible. So politics itself, I believe, is inherently flawed. And I believe that uh, since we only have a finite amount of moral energy to bring to bear any given day, it's probably best for each one of us as individuals to figure out where we have influence and use that influence as wisely as possible. It's always going to be closer to us, solving problems at the lowest possible level. But it, it doesn't mean those solutions are any less real just because they're not you know, being talked about in Washington, D.C. or making some kind of national headlines. Yeah, and by the way, it was Ezra Taft Benson who said that if we are going to save the Constitution, it will not be Washington, D.C. It'll be, well, the elders of Israel, but I think it's going to be more than that. That's another conversation. Anything else you want to talk about, Brian, before we end this podcast? I just really appreciate you having me on to talk about this today. As you can tell, this is I'm very passionate about this, and and I, I just would ask people, please, if, if there's a person or an, an issue in the news that gets you fired up, it's always a good idea to ask yourself, what do I really know about this person or about this issue that wasn't told to me by someone else? And if the answer is, well, really very little, maybe it's time to do more of your own homework, your own fact-checking. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you for uh, coming on, and I will talk to you all later, folks. Thank you for listening to the Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone podcast. If you want to follow us on Facebook, go ahead and do so at Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone. If you want to follow us on Twitter, Gitter, and True Social, you can do so at RKY Freedom. That's RKY, then the word freedom. If you have a suggestion, comment, or you know of a guest that you think I should interview, go ahead and email the podcast. That email is Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at Proton, P R O T O N M A I L dot com. That's Rocky Mountain Freedom Zone at protonmail.com. Thank you for listening.